0: As with so much else, our beliefs don't always match reality. That's the case with poverty in America. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: Check for pulse. Stand
2: clear. Push to shock.
1: America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much.
0: I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. America is the land of opportunity. With a good education and a lot of initiative and hard work, no one needs to be poor. In this great land, if you're poor, it's your own damn fault. Of course, all such mean-spirited accusations may serve to keep the comfortable comfortable and insulated from reality, but none of it is true. The myth of rugged individualism never was anything but a myth. There are millions of our neighbors who have good educations, work hard, play by the rules, and yet may at times live in poverty through no fault of their own. And a lot more children are food insecure today than ever before. Now that America has finally turned a corner and has a new, sane, adult president dedicated to actually serving the country, perhaps just maybe government policies, which have served the ultra-wealthy very nicely indeed, can begin to face economic and social realities. Because rewarding the rich and punishing the poor is not only unethical, it's just bad economic policy. On today's show, we're going to look at a new book, Poorly Understood, What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty, and it's coming out in March poorly understood, not only challenges the conventional wisdom about poverty and inequality, but explains why these false beliefs continue to exist, providing an innovative blueprint for how the nation can, at last, move forward to alleviate it. At least in theory, we've tried from time to time, but now perhaps is a new chance. Our guest is co-author of the book, Mark Robert Rank, who is currently the Hadley Professor of Social Welfare at the George George. Uh, Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. He's widely recognized as one of the foremost experts on issues of poverty, inequality, and social justice. He's been recipient of many awards, and his research has been reported in a wide range of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and USA Today. Mark Brank, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: What, oh, you're welcome, Bert. Thanks for having me on.
0: What what prompted you and your co-authors to write this book at this time? And how did you come up with that title, Poorly Understood?
1: <laughs> Actually, I I think I came up with that title in the shower, which is uh where often our best ideas <laughs> Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I I was uh uh one of my co-authors and I had been working on things and we started thinking about um just all the the myths that we've encountered in our you know in our work on poverty and inequality and that there really hadn't been a book that that really took on those myths and so what we did is we kind of sat down and and drew up our own lists of of those myths and they they turned out to be you know very similar and uh, we went from there. And this idea, I guess, this started about uh, almost two years ago. Um, but I think the timing of the book uh, coming out, you know, this March is is excellent. That, as you mentioned in the introduction, we ha- have an opportunity, I think, to really do something about this. So, um, so that's yeah, that's kind of how it came about.
0: Now, there's been a lot of uh, uh, lip service to ending poverty in America year after year after year. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember LBJ had his War on mm-hmm. Poverty and created a bunch of different programs. One of them I became familiar with is the uh, housing programs house, under HUD, Housing and Urban Development. Mm-hmm. And my sense was that the people who lived there had no participation in it. It was all being done to them, for them, and they didn't feel any ownership of it. And and that's one of the problems. I think, you know, just coming down, solutions from the top down hmm, haven't worked so well before. What about that stuff?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, uh, interesting idea. I, I mean, actually, um, the War on Poverty did, did try to, in some of their programs, try to incorporate... Um, poor folks' sort of experiences and their ideas um, in terms of community action and community organization. I think you're right that, in general, um, most of these policies and programs are top-down and don't really look at um, or understand the real realities of poverty, which, again, is what we're trying to to look at. And those realities – as we'll talk about during this hour, sure. uh, those realities are much different than uh, than the many myths and the stereotypes that we as Americans often hold towards the poor.
0: Well, it's hard to solve something unless you look at what it really is. <laughs> That's very important to do. And yeah. in, in America, and I believe this is true, poverty is more prevalent and deeper than in other industrialized nations. Tell us, please, how yeah. about our uniqueness in this aspect. How do we compare?
1: Yeah, exactly right. So uh, when we look across countries and we use a particular measure that allows us to make those comparisons, we see that the United States is at the very high end of the sort of the the industri in the industrialized world, the what's known as the OECD countries. So our rates of poverty um using this measure are 17, 18 percent. The overall average for sort of Western industrial countries is around 10 percent. So we're almost double what the average is. Um, If you look at the depth of our poverty, how far below like a poverty line are people falling, we are again at the extreme level uh, in terms of the depth of our poverty. And the other thing that's really interesting uh, about all this is uh, it's also the issue of economic inequality, income inequality and wealth inequality. And if you look at that. We are very much of an outlier. We are at the very extreme end of inequality. So the difference between those at the top and those at the bottom is wider in the United States than in all European countries, Canada, Australia, and so on. So we're very much of an, of an outlier in terms of poverty and inequality. And, um, we could certainly talk about, you know, why that is. And I think we will, um, you know, in the, in the minutes ahead.
0: Well, I hope so. And uh, Bernie Sanders posted this yesterday. The Walton family wealth in 2018 was $146 billion. In 2021, it's $228 billion. And the minimum wage at Walmart, which is owned by the Walton family, in 2018 was $11 an hour the minimum wage in 2021 is $11 an hour. <laughs> what are some of the myths that have prevented us from our addressing our nation's extreme disparities in wealth and income?
1: Yeah, so um one of the one of the sort of ideas out there um and this is uh held uh largely by conservatives is, well, you know, inequality isn't bad in and of itself as long as people can move up and down the ladder of opportunity. So, you know, you may not be doing well this year, but as long as you can move up and you'll do well in the future, that's fine. Well... This is another problem, and that is, uh, you know, we we've always thought of ourselves as the land of opportunity, that there's a ladder of opportunity and economic mobility that can happen, and actually, surprisingly, there's less opportunity to move uh, in that in that upward way. In the united states than in many other countries so um so a lot of people think well you know inequality might not be so bad as long as people can move up and down but it turns out that it, it's harder um for folks to move up in, in the united states and the reason why i think yeah. about this uh, we have it if we think about the income distribution and we think about sort of as a ladder What's happened is the rungs on that ladder are getting further apart, and it makes it harder for people to climb that ladder. And so if you look at, you know, there's the, the myth of, uh, well, people can rise from rags to riches. Well, it turns out that of folks um, who are born at the low end of the income distribution, only about 6 or 7% of them will actually wind up in the top 20% of the income distribution. Um, so it 's about you know um one out of twenty will actually do that, whereas in other countries it 's somewhat higher so that 's certainly one of the myths that that we have about um inequality i think I think another big myth uh that that focuses on both inequality and poverty. Is the idea that, well, if you do well, you deserve it, and if you don't do well, you you deserve it as well, that, you know, it's because of, um, you know, hard work and individual initiative and all this kind of stuff, and um, what we show in the book is that, really, the way to think about effort and hard work is that it should be seen as a necessary but not a sufficient condition for getting ahead. And the reason I say that mm-hmm. is that if we think about our lives, you know, and, and, and moving forward and trying to achieve some goals. But you, we, you have to put in some effort, some work, and so on. However, just because you do that doesn't mean you'll get ahead. And I've talked to so many people in poverty or near poverty who are working, you know, much harder oh, than yeah. I am. Yeah. And, and, and because of other reasons, because of structural really not able to get ahead. So just focusing on hard work and effort doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do well economically.
0: And I've read books by people who buy into this myth and then they end up blaming themselves. And that is so incredibly unhealthy and unproductive. They, they you know, cuz that's what they're taught to believe. And you know, I I I wonder, you know, it's 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 so easy to just Ignore poverty. Let, well, let's, what is, yeah. and, and people don't know, I think, what the poverty line is. I was in the state senate in, in New Hampshire for a long time, and we talk about free and reduced lunches for poor people, and they had to be, the family had to be like, you know, 150% of, of uh, the poverty line. And that line is just shocking what poverty really is. What, what defines poverty yeah. by that measure in America? Yeah people don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, so actually it's interesting. The, um, the way that we define poverty was, uh, devised by a woman in, um, the social security administration by the name of Molly Orshansky. And, um, as she sort of, um, what, what she did is she said, okay, what do you need during the year for, to buy a minimally adequate diet and uh, what does that cost? And then multiply that by three, and that's the poverty line. Um, you know, I don't want to go into a lot of uh-huh. technical sure. detail, but yeah, yeah. you know, it's a, li- it's a, it's a little, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a little odd. But um, the idea there is basically that the poverty line represents um, if you fall below that, you really can't purchase the kind of daily necessities that you need for a decent life. Um, but it turns out, as you were saying. The poverty line is really conservative. So um last year the poverty line for a family of four was around um $25,000, um for a family of three is around $18,000. Um and that's if you if you if you sort of budget that out to a daily on a daily or monthly or weekly basis. Um that that's extremely um extremely uh conservative and and very mm-hmm. tight to live on. The, the the other thing here is that we say um you know, like last year, ten and a half percent of the population uh, fell into poverty. but that's that's the poverty line represents poverty at its most opulent level. In other words, if you're one dollar over that line, you're not in poverty. Right. It turns out that that in the united states forty five percent of people who are in poverty are below half the poverty line. Oh my god. So for a family of four, instead of $25,000, we're talking about 12,500. Almost half of those in poverty are living below half the poverty line. So, it's 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 really very extreme.
0: Jeez. I had no idea. Wow. That's and, 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 Yeah,
1: I know. It's, it, it, it's it's I think I think you're you're not alone. A lot of people didn't don't realize that.
0: And we, you know, people think, well, you know, if somebody's really rich, good for them. And I find that to be the case with with people who, you know, are living in mediocre housing at best, who are big supporters of uh, Trump and Republican policies that, uh, you know, they, I I think they fantasize that they're going to be rich someday themselves and they don't want to be taxed. But what? And the Eisenhower a republican uh yeah. tried he had a very high level of taxation on income over and above a certain threshold yeah. and now when we talk yeah. about that people think what is, what is this communism or something like that but the economy yeah. was fabulous under under Eisenhower at least for white people yeah but uh yeah w- no 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 that's that,
1: that's exactly right i mean that, that you know that's uh you're pointing out something that's really important that yeah during the nineteen fifties i mean the uh the tax rate on the on high income um you know was i don't know, eighty ninety yeah. percent um and uh and 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 yet w- the economy did really well in the nineteen oh, fifties and the nineteen sixties and so yeah, we what, ha- what has happened? We've we've kind of gotten into this mantra of you know lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. And um, if you look at economic growth, um, having having low taxes does not necessarily translate <laughs> into economic growth.
0: <laughs> no, it uh, absolutely not. We need to increase. Let, let, let,
1: me, let me let me, let me um, sort of extend on that. Please do. Here's a reason why is. Um, What really leads to a strong economy is investing in your people, investing in your human capital, investing in children's education, these kinds of things, investing in people's health. Those are all things that make us as workers more productive, more innovative, and so on. When you have lower taxation, you have less money for that. So there's less money for health, for education, and so on the workforce is, is not going to be as prepared. So that's one of the reasons why um, higher taxation does not necessarily lead to lower economic growth. In fact, in, some, in many cases, it leads to greater economic growth.
0: Of course it does. And there's the old – I can't believe any politicians even try – to sight trickle down as something less legitimate. As, <laughs> uh, as Rocky said to Bullwinkle about a, you know, Bullwinkle used to try to pull a rabbit out of his hat. He said, that trick never works. <laughs> It doesn't? Well
1: you, well, well you know uh um uh, uh Laffler, um who sort of sure. um you know, is is economist uh out, out in California. Um you know, he's the kind of the guy that, that started the trickle down and the, <laughs> and writing on the napkin and uh you know, he got the uh the the freedom uh, medal of freedom from um uh, from our past President Trump uh a few years wow. ago. So <laughs> That idea actually is, is still around, but I think you're right, it's not it's not nearly as prevalent, because it's just, no, it's just it's... you know, from empirical research, it just doesn't hold up at all.
0: Well, I think to people like Trump, the idea of freedom means freedom for the very wealthy to do whatever the heck they want, period, end of story. For those who may have just, con- uh, just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a a uh, hit on democracy one of the things we have to overcome we're talking with mark robert rank who is co-author of a new book not quite out yet poorly understood what americans get wrong about poverty and you know people think oh it's it's them and not us you, that that but you say that that's completely wrong uh, tell us about that aspect that essential aspect of where we think we are uh, compared to the reality, you know, them and, and you know, my get most people who are not poor, I would think oftentimes imagine the poor means urban and black, not yeah. rural yeah. and yeah. white. What's the reality yeah. on this? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I think that's that's certainly um, that's the the kind of the mindset out there for a lot of people that, you know, poverty is an issue of them. It's not an issue of us. And there are many ways to sort of say, actually, that's incorrect. So one of the ways is, you know, when we talk about poverty, we often think about it on as kind of a snapshot. Who's who's poor, you know, at this particular point in time? But a lot of my work in the past has looked at, over the course of a long period of time, over the course of people's lives, what's the risk of poverty? It turns out that a majority of Americans, a majority of white Americans, will at some point in their lives experience poverty. So between the ages of 20 and 75, about 60% of Americans will experience a year below the official poverty line, which again is very conservative, And 75% of folks will experience either poverty or near poverty. So we can think about it that way that actually, um, you know, most of us at some point will experience poverty. And the reason for that is if you think about over a long period of time, Things happen to people that they didn 't anticipate. People lose a job, you get yes. sick, a yes. family splits up, and over long periods of time, those things are quite likely to occur so that 's one way to think about this issue of poverty being more of an issue should be thought of as an issue of us rather than them. You, you mentioned about you know that we often think of the poor as urban right. uh, urban black folks um, you know using welfare and, and, and this kind of thing. Well, it turns out that the largest group in poverty are white. Um, It turns out that the most extreme poverty in the United States, the most deep-seated poverty, actually is in rural areas. So if you look at, for example, rural Appalachia, or if you look at the Deep South and the Mississippi Delta, if you look at uh, uh, Native American reservations, these are areas where you find really extreme poverty so uh, so uh, although uh, the point is we can find poverty a- across the United States. We can find folks that are in poverty probably down your street, down your block, um, maybe not today, but probably at some point in the future so that's why um, that's why I think it's really important for us to understand this as an issue of us rather than them because too often, you know, when we think about it as them, it's like, well, you know, I feel bad about this, but, you know, but, I, right. I really don't have any, I don't have any responsibility in terms of that. Um, and, and what I'm arguing here is, um, is kind of a self-interest argument that actually all, many of us will wind up experiencing poverty. And so wouldn't it make sense to start thinking about addressing that, 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 uh, that situation? <sighs>
0: Yeah if people people rarely think about what's the right thing to do what's the moral thing to do they look at their pocketbook they consider where they are and you know it does this make sense or at least argument makes sense you know never mind being the right thing to do or not what about you know aside from you know being altruistic and being nice yeah. and, and and what the right accuses uh, people not on the right of being, you yeah. know like oh just uh, yeah. uh, soft on crime, soft on on welfare, right. you know we need to uh, get get heavy on this but what what's the reality of I mean you know you've often heard it said you got to run government like a business well any business knows in order to prosper, you have to invest appropriately yeah. so you know for, for example, I mean childhood poverty, what is the price we pay? Yeah for high rates of childhood poverty. Why is it in all of yeah. our interest? Long question.
1: Yeah, Yeah. you're a great question. It follows well with what we were just saying. So um, this is something that I was interested in a couple of years ago, is thinking about it from just the perspective that you're saying, from kind of a business or economic perspective, and thinking about What what actually is the price of childhood poverty? And so I, along with a graduate student here, did an analysis that came out a couple years ago. And what we what we factored in is that we know that um, children who are in poverty have higher health care costs because poverty is associated with greater illnesses. Um, We know that poverty is, is, is associated with less economic productivity. If children are born and raised in poverty, they're going to be less economically productive when they reach their working years. And we also looked at the fact that poverty is associated with higher criminal justice costs. If you're in poverty, there's although most folks um, do not engage in crime, there is a higher risk of of uh, criminal justice and incarceration, things like that, which is very expensive. So we factored those um, all those things in, used the best research that was out there, and what we estimated was that this was for 2015 that in the United States. Childhood poverty, and this was a conservative estimate, was costing the United States on an annual basis slightly over $1 trillion. To put that in perspective, in in 2015, that was 28% of the entire federal budget. And the reason it's so expensive, think about this. You can either, you can deal with the problem now or you can deal with it later. You can deal with it on the front end or on the back end. And if you're dealing with a problem on the back end of the problem, it's always a lot more expensive. So it's not as if we're not paying for this. We are paying for it in higher incarceration costs, in higher health care costs, in all of these kinds of things and if we were to spend that money on the front end this was the other part of the analysis that i think is really interesting what we estimated was that for every dollar we spend on reducing childhood poverty we would save between 7 and 12 dollars in future costs so just from a dollars and cents perspective it makes so much it's so much smarter to reduce poverty because you get a really big bang for the buck by doing for doing that, and and that 's a, a very hard nosed economic reason for why we ought to be focusing and reducing childhood poverty in in the united states
0: and the third section of the book that we 're talking about uh, poorly understood is titled "What is the Cost of Poverty?" and it goes into it uh, there a fair amount and We've had all kinds of presidents through the years. Ronald Reagan, of course, did a lot to shift America from being a republic to an all-out plutocracy, creating the image of the welfare queen while doling out huge welfare to you know, his buddies and uh, yeah. weapons contractors. Um, but Barack Obama, when he was president, addressed some of the research you did. What did he recognize, and what are the, some of, some of the things that he at least tried to do about it?
1: Well, I think he, you know, I mean he his background is um, you know, was uh com- community organizing and uh in Chicago and you know, I think he he had a good handle on um the real life experiences of people and what they're going through and trying to think about what can we do to to sort of assist people to to help them in terms of 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 moving forward in their lives. So, um yeah he you know i i i think the major thing that he did, which is certainly really um important, was introducing the idea of trying to get health care to more uh, americans i mean right. that is that is a key kind of issue again if you look at the United States, we are an outlier you know, as I said before, not only in terms of our uh, extent of poverty and inequality, but but one of the reasons why we're such an outlier is that we don't provide the kinds of things that most people feel are basic human uh human rights like health care or childcare or affordable housing. You know, we don't we don't invest in those kinds of things and the result is that we have much higher rates of poverty. So I think you know, I think his, his legacy was uh, in terms of thinking about poverty was trying to get health care to more people who are struggling. Um, and, you know, he was, he was after the, 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 first two years, he was really tied by Congress who, you know, who really did dug in their heels and didn't want to pass anything that he, that he did. So he was definitely at a disadvantage, yeah. but I think, you know, certainly with, with um, now president Biden, I, I think there's a real opportunity to um, to kind of move forward on some of those ideas.
0: Boy, I sure hope so. I think obviously most people do. And another president, what I, the person I think was probably the greatest president of the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt, he had something yeah. called the Second Bill of Rights, which it, it never got moved. And that uh, the Economic Bill of Rights included employment, uh, farmers' rights to a fair income. There were a lot more farmers back then. Uh, freedom from unfair competition and monopolies. Huh. Housing, yeah. medical care, Social Security, education, all these things. What What prevents, I mean, he, why doesn't that happen? And why is that just so far in the distant past? And I, I do think that Biden has, he, he's, I think, in that vein with Lyndon Johnson and Franklin Roosevelt. So perhaps, yeah. uh, I don't know, does that economic Bill of Rights yeah. still make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah, oh, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and um, you know, also FDR talked about um, the four freedoms, and he talked about uh, one of those freedoms being freedom from want, which is the idea of, you know, that that folks, in order to live a livable life, you can't. It, it's hard to do that if you're if you're in constant yes. economic uh insecurity and poverty and so you know he framed freedom in terms of of this idea of freedom from want and as you said the 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 um, second bill of rights laid out some of these things that we should be thinking about and you know um mm-hmm. uh it's interesting because conservatives, um, you know, often, um, rail on the, on the issue of freedom and liberty and, and, and label everything with that. But FDR was interesting in that he also used those terms, but in a very progressive way. And so, um, I think, uh, yeah, as you said, you know, with, with president Biden, I think he does come out of kind of that tradition, you know, Lyndon Johnson, certainly his mentor was FDR. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and you know, but the political um, uh, p- political sort of um, environment tends to go in cycles, as as you know, and uh, it may be that we're now sort of entering a period where we're we're going along a more progressive line here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I am I am actually quite hopeful. I mean, you know, I, I've been at this and you've been at this for a long time, and. You know, in the last ten years, there's been more discussion about inequality. You know, the one uh, percent, the ninety-nine yeah, yeah. percent, than um, than there had been in a long time. And now people are talking about things that you know a few years ago would have been really radical, like um, a universal basic income. I mean, you know that that it's it, that's not happening tomorrow, but there's a, a lot of discussion about that. So yes. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic.
0: I do appreciate optimism on this show. I mean, things have been so bad, but boy, it's looking up in a lot of ways, I think. And
1: it, it can only go up from from what we've seen.
0: I mean, I happen to think that Biden is a pretty darn good president anyway, but in comparison to that orange thing, wow, yeah. is it great? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah that's, that's, my, that's my feeling. It, we can only go up from that. That's... Uh, that's the
0: low point. <laughs> well, if uh, for those who may have just tuned in, and it happens, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive because if if people are in desperate poverty, you know, as Bob Dylan said, if you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. Uh, we're speaking with yeah. uh, Mark Rank, who is co-author of Poorly Understood: What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty. We mentioned you mentioned universal basic income. I believe even Nixon talked about that yeah. and and uh, Andrew Yang made a lot of points on that when he was running for president. What what about that? Your thoughts on that. Does that make sense? Can can yeah, it get the political so, support to happen? That's another question.
1: Yeah, so actually um that idea goes back um actually goes back a long way. Thomas Paine, you know, who wrote Common Sense, 1776. Proposed a variation of this idea, um, okay. and a, as you said, uh, you know Richard Nixon. Um, actually, you know, if you look at Nixon, in some ways, he was actually um, fairly progressive in in, in some ways, um, and yes. he uh, had proposed an idea of a sort of a guaranteed income. And as you said, um, Andrew Yang certainly made it a, a centerpiece of his yeah. campaign last year. So I think um, I think it's a. It, it, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I think it's a tough sell in America, um, because of kind of the attitudes we've been talking about that, you know, well, you don't get something. You, if you don't work for it, you don't get anything kind of, kind of deal. Um, but it's actually a very straightforward idea. And, and just recently, um, you know, Mitt Romney proposed this idea of a child allowance, which would be, um, uh you know uh giving uh folks below a certain income you know below a income level i think it was 400,000 of giving them uh you know a certain amount every month to um to help raise kids which is that's a common idea in european countries they've had child allowances for decades um, that 's a variation on the universal basic income, and that actually that idea i think is uh going to be discussed and 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 uh President Biden has also
2: yeah.
1: um, put in uh, the uh, that idea in the um in the stimulus um, package that that he has mm-hmm. um, so i think uh I think that the 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 sort of smaller um idea of the children 's allowance is definitely something that could happen the idea though of a universal basic income. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's, that's a hard sell yeah. in the United States. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a pretty interesting issue. And, you know, the issue that the, the, the issue that I think is really going to be important in the, in the years ahead is, uh, what's going to happen if there are fewer jobs, you know, because of automation, because of artificial intelligence, right. Um, what are people going to do? And that—that that was kind of where Andrew yes. Yang was coming coming from as well. So yes. I think that's a really important issue.
0: Yeah, we have to look at that. And the idea that, well, if poor people get a universal basic income—and we're talking basic income—they're not going to want to yeah. get any more money. That it's so prejudiced yeah. and just wrong i mean people want more stuff wrong. they want more it just we do we're not no nobody's going to be satisfied with a basic income and just sit back and do nothing yeah
1: and you know um that idea has been used in terms of framing welfare Yes. And uh, and I can, and I can give you one example of that. You know, there there is the idea. Well, if you uh, you know, for every child a woman has, you know, if you get more money for um, from welfare, right. oh, it's an incentive to have more kids. Well, I did a study on this, yeah. and I looked at the birth rates of women on welfare versus the general population. First of all, uh-huh. women on welfare had a lower birth rate than women in the general population. But second, I asked women, and I said uh you know is this is this uh do you think about this and and to a person every person said you know what you got to be crazy to have another kid for an extra 50 dollars a month <laughs> it's like that that doesn't make any economic sense so it, it, no people that's not why people have children and as you said um, you know, people, uh, the, uh, folks in poverty don't sit around and say, oh, you know, what a good life I'm at. I mean, everybody is saying, you know, I want to I get out of this. I want to do better. I want a job. I want to work, you know. So um, that's the attitude that uh, that is out there. It's not this attitude of, of oh, I'm going to just sit around and do nothing.
0: <laughs> I know. And I, I remember back in 1976 when my candidate for president, Fred Harris, Said, if you draw a map uh, of high unemployment and you draw a map of high crime, you're drawing the same map because people want to get ahead. The they don't know how, there's no opportunity. So, what else can they do? You know, sell whatever the heck yeah. white powder it is on the street. And uh, I, think, I think he was right. And you, you talk about improving the structure of the game rather than yeah. s- simply those who lose out at the game. What 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 might be ways yeah. to do that? What yeah. do you mean?
1: Yeah, so uh what I mean by that is I, I use the example of uh musical chairs to illustrate what's happening with poverty in the United States. And uh let, let's think about a game of musical chairs. So so we have let's say we have ten players and we have eight chairs. Okay, and the people circle around and two two people are gonna lose out. So why did they lose out? Well, on one level, we can say, well, you know, they weren't as as quick or as agile as somebody else. Maybe they were in a bad position when the music stopped. And we can focus on those reasons for why those two people lost the game. But if we step back and we say, wait a minute, the structure of the game ensures that two people are going to lose out. So it really doesn't matter what the characteristics are. Two people are going to lose out. And that's, that's what we do in this country. What we do is we yeah. say, we say, um, you know, um, folks who are uh, at a greater risk of poverty and less education, more likely to be in a single-parent family, and so on. And those are reasons for why their individual risk has increased. But if we step back and say, well, wait a minute, there aren't enough jobs that pay a decent wage, and we don't have things like health care and child care – Two people are going to lose out regardless of what their situation, their individual characteristics are. So what I say is that, you know, what we need to do is we need to to focus on changing the structure of the game rather than the players who are playing at it. So Mm. there's nothing wrong with increasing people's education and their skills and so on. But if we don't create jobs that pay a decent wage, it's not going to make any difference. And that's what we've done in the past. We've really focused on trying to improve individuals, uh, what's known as human capital. Uh-huh. Um, but we haven't really thought about, let's change the structure of the game. Another way of seeing it is just imagine people in a queue. Uh, and, and at the end of the queue are, you know, those, uh, at, the, at, the end of the, at the beginning of the queue are those good jobs. Well, we can move individuals up and down in their position in the queue But there's still going to be the same people that lose out because there's only a certain amount of opportunities out there. So, and that's, I think, a really fundamental shift that we need to, to have in terms of addressing poverty. Because too often we focus on just increasing, you know, you need more skills, you need more education, and so on. That's all fine, but if we right. don't change the structure of the game, we're not going to get anywhere.
0: And that is talked about in the book. Chapter seven's title is Raising <laughs> Education and Skill Levels Will Not Solve Poverty. What and you know it, there's this talk about uh, a $15 minimum wage. Now it's 7.25, I believe, which is just absurd. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and people say, "Well, if you do that, there'll be fewer jobs." W- what about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, um so um, that has been economists have and sociologists have looked at this question over the last, oh, I would say 20 years. Sure. And what they've shown is that um increasing the minimum wage has little to no effect on uh overall rates of unemployment. Um now I, I, I want to preface that by saying that those studies have looked at raising the minimum wage by, you know, two or $3 an hour. Right. So here we're talking about raising it, you know, seven, seven and a half dollars an hour. Right. Right. Um, and the congressional budget office came out with a study last week showing that hmm. actually that would Uh, That would definitely have a significant effect on reducing people in poverty, but they estimated that it would create um, 1.2 million um, unemployed as a result, because the reason is that that's a pretty significant jump. Um, But we might also think about ways to create, you know, again, thinking about the structure of the game. Creating more um, job opportunities on a macro level. So, uh, uh-huh. so what I would say is that um, you know I think, and this is also what Joe Biden is saying, that you know if you're working full time, uh, you shouldn't still be in poverty. Right. And if you're working at the minimum wage, you're definitely in poverty. You yes. know, fifteen dollars gets us up to about a, a sort of you know the the minimum that people should be at. So i'm I would be very much in favor of, first of all, raising the minimum wage to something like fifteen dollars an hour. And then just as important uh, indexing it every year to inflation. because, as you said, you know, the minimum wage now was – was the last time that was raised was in 2009 with President Obama, and it's 7.25. and it's been all this time. It's remained at that level, and the reason is because it takes Congress to raise the minimum wage. Uh-huh. So if we have a, a situation where it was indexed to inflation, it would just keep up every year, just like we do with Social Security. So I think that that, that, that is definitely a – would be a positive step in reducing poverty, no question about it.
0: Congress. Yes, we have to move them. And they, I think every one of them, Democrat, Republican, whatever, they're all interested in getting reelected, period. No more, no less. End yeah. of story. Just getting reelected. Yeah. How? I don't think that they have felt the pressure from the people, that people really care about this issue. I mean, maybe they would. I, I happen to think that one of the things that Roosevelt did, Franklin Roosevelt, that, that made him very popular, part of the New Deal was creating jobs, creating jobs. And right now we have, you know, there's talk of the Green New Deal. He, he has a different phrase for it. That's fine. I don't care. But there's so many jobs at, 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 at rebuilding our infrastructure, doing things that are, you know, environmentally sound and creating a lot of jobs. Do you sense that with this new administration, we'll begin to see some serious attention given to these policies? Is the public will starting to be strong enough on this?
1: I think so. Um, I think, you know, I mean, you you raise a a really interesting idea that— you know, with Franklin Roosevelt, um, you know there was uh, 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 there was an urgency in getting yes. people back to work because of, you know, unemployment was at twenty oh, yeah. percent, and so um, uh, the New Deal, you know, uh, uh, created jobs through the the Work Progress Administration, through the Conserva- uh the CCC, yes. the Con- Conservation uh, Corps. Um, and they did a lot of really productive things. I mean, you mm-hmm. go to, like, national parks and things like oh, that. You yeah. did some thing, things that are really um, pretty amazing. So there are, there are, you know, so many things, I think, today, you know, in terms of the environment and other issues that, um, that you know, yeah, the government could can play an active role in actually creating jobs and getting people to work um, and yes. getting people to do productive things. So I think that that's, and that's, you know, again, that gets back to this changing the structure of the game, changing the, yes. the you know, improving the structure so that um, people can do well. So I think, uh, I, yeah, I think we are, you know, we, we may be looking at, at some of those kinds of ideas out there because there's, you know, as you mentioned with the Green New Deal, there's there's just a lot of things that we could think about in the future um, that are opportunities for us to take advantage of and in terms of of, uh, both the environment and providing uh, job opportunities.
0: Sure makes sense to me. But then again, if it makes good common sense, it'll probably never happen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. And, you know, you can't have a real democracy if people are left out of the system. Poorly understood is the book we're talking about. Poorly understood what Americans get wrong about poverty. We're talking with co-author Mark Robert Rank. And it's amazing to me what motivates Congress. Through many years, they've had no reluctance to spend hundreds of billions on so-called defense. Uh, National security has been the title. Well, you can't be against national security. Well, I I think reframing the idea uh, of of what national security is, I think it could be argued that that waste of money pff, makes us weaker and less strong. Uh, how is it that there is the unquestioned moral justification of that, but somehow it 's unethical to even think about bolstering supports which hold so many back from achieving the American dream? Uh, Republicans are tough on this, and, you know they get a lot of money from the defense industry. Any signs of that changing, I'm trying to be optimistic here, but boy, they are a tough crowd yeah. to move
1: yeah, yeah, I don't know if I have any answers for that, but uh but I think you're you're exactly right that you know we can think of national security, we can think of like homeland security as you know yes. uh people doing well uh and 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 people are more and more people today are economically insecure uh-huh. and economically vulnerable. Certainly the the pandemic has, yes. has, has increased that um obviously, but but even before that, um more and more people are um are are struggling to get ahead. And that's a that's a, a national security issue. Um, you know, we should be investing in as I said before, in our in our in our human capital in our um, in our human potential um... that that makes us a stronger economy a stronger country and it makes us a, a just a better country um so yeah i think you know people talk about um welfare and and, and oh fraud welfare fraud mm-hmm. well you know there's there's certainly a, a substantial amount of waste in terms of national security um and and sort of defense and and the i mean you know i don't we don't need to go into detail about it but but clearly there's been a lot of waste oh, that that's gone on with that and um and so, yeah, I would like to see some of those dollars be invested more in, in you know, in our in our in our uh, in our children and in our future, um, rather than than on you know some of these national defense uh, uh, um, topics.
0: And again, investing wisely, you know, you got to do that to to have a more secure future. And the Republicans these days are all about unity. You know that this uh, impeachment stuff is dividing the country. But I do think in the lower density areas, you know, in Appalachia and the Midwest and places like that, where there's frankly a lot of poor white people, they, they tend to vote Republican. I think because they're frustrated, because they work hard, they play by the rules and they don't get ahead. Trump didn't play by the rules and he got ahead, at least in their image. And in terms of unity, you know, the reality is, as as you guys say, uh, the Republican impoverished voter in Appalachia has much more in common with the urban Democratic poor voter in the big cities than they realize. We need to listen yeah. to these people somehow and, and connect with yeah. them. Thoughts on that, how that can be done?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, people might, people might not, you know, our listening might not realize, but If you look at um, median wages for male workers, um, full-time workers, they are today uh, a few hundred dollars less than they were in 1973, controlling for inflation. So in other words, over this nearly 50-year period, wages for men who are working full-time have not increased at all in terms of their purchasing power. And that's what That's really what Trump was tying into is people, as you said, people feeling like I'm working, but I'm not getting ahead. I'm not moving forward. Um, And I think that that one of the reasons for that has been, you know, these policies that we've had that have that have favored the rich at the expense of of the rest of us. Um, You know, another statistic that's pretty startling is um, that the bottom 60% of the population in the United States currently hold less than 1% of the entire financial wealth. I mean, think about that, you know, 60% of the population have less than 1% of the financial wealth in the country. Like that's, that's shocking. And, and, and that's where, I mean, a lot of these folks are feeling I'm not getting ahead. I'm not getting, I'm not moving forward. So I think, um, I think we need to, you know, as I said, the, the, the person in in, uh, in rural Appalachia and the person in, you know, inner city St. Louis, they're actually they're 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 facing some of the same kinds of things. Those are certainly different circumstances, but they're facing some of the same kind of things. And we need to start thinking about policies, you know, that will get people moving forward. And again, I, I you know, as I said, I'm I'm fairly optimistic that I think we're you know, that that in the Biden administration, I think that they are very much attuned to that and, and thinking about that. That the problem, as you said, is, you know, getting Congress to move on that yeah. and, and Republicans to move on that idea. Um, and that that's always difficult.
0: And getting their constituents to see, this matters to me. You know, if people feel like, well, yeah. I'm not in poverty, what the heck do I care?
1: But... Yeah, and you know, that's the ironic thing about Donald Trump. It's like, you know, I mean this guy was not for the working working man, but, but you know, he sort of framed it that yes, way and, and, you know, people kind of bought into this oh, and it's yeah. like, wow. You know, if you just look at his past behavior, he stiffed all of his contractors. Oh, he was yep. like, this guy is like bad news for people <laughs> who are working. And yet here they are, you know, supporting. Him. So yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm I'm talking to the choir here. <laughs> well, this is
0: true. We do I think tend to have a progressive, educated audience. I don't know, but uh, you know, people uh, you know, they, they sometimes people identify with their abuser. I don't. know. That's a whole separate subject. We should get a shrink for that. Right. I don't know. But in in your book, you guys discuss a variety of innovative policies designed to help turn this pattern around, and hopefully we'll see some serious attention. Given to these policies, we've we've discussed uh, quite a few thus far, but I, I don't know yeah. if there there are other suggestions, innovative policies uh, that we haven't touched on that are talked about in your book.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, that one of the one of the ideas that's, that we haven't talked about that's a pretty interesting idea is. You know, most of our our policies directed towards um, folks with lower income are are based on kind of income-based income, income uh, based ideas. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting is to think about building people's assets. So, um, you know, we have those policies for the middle class and the upper class. You're able to deduct your, your home mortgage mm-hmm. interest. That allows you to sort of build your asset in a house. But we don't really have those policies for lower-income folks. And there's a move around the country and actually around the the world um, to think about policies that invest in people's um, assets and allow them to kind of move forward. So, for example, um, you know, every child, there, there's a movement for this. Every child, you know, who's born. Um, we might, um, uh, the state government or the federal government might put some money into a, account for them uh-huh. and that they might match the money, um, you know, on a monthly basis that, that you put in. Uh-huh. And by the time that child is 18, they can use that money for higher education or for starting a business or something like that. Well, that's a way of thinking about people getting ahead a, a little bit different than we have in the past. And I think that that's pretty, um, pretty innovative.
0: Yeah, it is, and we need innovation. You know, and and so many, you know, formerly moderate people now they're considered to the left. I guess. I mean, Eisenhower would be considered yeah. a real lefty these yeah. days, but a lot of people have have given up, seeing that government looks like oh, they're just a subsidiary of the rich and powerful, and those powerful interests want to keep us feeling powerless. But are we really powerless?
1: No, um, I mean clearly, you know money has uh, has definitely corrupted our democracy i mean your Your show is kind of uh, framed about democracy and i 'm sure you 've talked about this before many times, probably um, that money certainly has a corrupting influence, but yet there's also power in numbers, and there 's lots uh-huh. of examples of people organizing. To get uh, to put pressure on the political system and on those who are in power, um, you know, we can just think about the last ten years. And you know, as I said before, the right. the one percent and the ninety nine percent, the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. Think about Black Lives Matter. Think mm-hmm. about you know various movements that have really uh, you know, if we think about Black Lives Matter, that that's had a pretty significant effect yes. in the last year. It sure. Um, has. And, and that's people kind of getting together, organizing, mobilizing. Um, and so I, I, would like to see the same thing around sort of these economic issues and poverty and inequality. Um, you know, people motivated to, to get together and to, and to start, um, you know, putting pressure and, and organizing. So I think that that's a very, um, that's a very positive sign in, in a democracy that people can, form together, can get together, organize and uh and, and put pressure on their on their elected officials to to change some of these things.
0: Yes, it can be done. We are not powerless. I love that former Senator Al Franken said your book, quote, should be required reading for every member of Congress, at least the ones that read. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good line. <laughs> that is Well, perhaps we be, can become a land of upward mobility and opportunity. Perhaps it can happen. Uh, this has been very, very interesting and and always like to be uh, hopeful here, and especially with the new uh, uh, government, uh, uh, President uh, Biden. I do think it's interesting that he did the opposite of what Democrats often do. In the primary, they run to the left and then move to the center. He seems to have run to the center and now he's yeah. moved to the left. I love it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So your book is coming out in March. How can uh, people uh, get that?
1: Oh, they should be able to get it any you know, Amazon, uh you yeah, know, yeah. their local bookstore. Local um, bookstores, yeah. Yeah, their local bookstore. Um so yeah, it should be should be available and uh yeah, I think we're gonna have i I hope it gets I, I think that as I said before, I think the timing is great. I mean yes. it's like We're starting to talk about these issues, and and uh, you know I think we're getting some going to get some reviews in the Washington Post and and other places. So that'll be great.
0: Well, good. The book is called Poorly Understood: What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty. Thank you so much for being with us, Mark Robert Rank, uh, one of the co-authors of the book.
1: You're very, very welcome. I I I very much enjoyed uh, chatting with you. It's it's been great.
0: Likewise. Thank you so much.